Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Pasord and I'm a psychiatrist based in London. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Jeremy Holmes. Jeremy Holmes is a psychiatrist and professor of psychotherapy at the University of Exeter. He's best known for his work in attachment theory and its application to psychotherapy and psychiatry. He's also written extensively on the relationship between literature and psychiatry, most recently in his book, The Therapeutic Imagination, using literature to deepen psychodynamic understanding and enhance empathy. Today we're going to be discussing, amongst other things, a paper published by Jeremy entitled Mind Reading, Tolstoy's Oak Tree Metaphor, Depression, Recovery and Psychiatric Spiritual Ecology. And this paper has been published in the journal Advances in Psychiatric Treatment. Jeremy, you seem to argue that reading Tolstoy's War and Peace could teach psychiatrists and the lay public a lot of psychiatry. What do you mean by this, and could you give us any examples? Well, I think psychiatrists and novelists are both interested in the same topics. They're interested in the human soul, the human psyche and human experience. They're interested in love, in sadness, in the things that go wrong with love. They're interested in infancy, childhood, how a person grows from a young man, let's say, into a mature adult. They're interested in the decline, in death, in loss, in separation. All these themes are held in common between novelists and psychiatrists. And I only take Tolstoy as an example because he's one of the greatest novelists who ever lived. So from that point of view, I feel every psychiatrist should read Tolstoy, but not just Tolstoy, they should read John Grisham, they should read Jane Austen, um, they should read a whole range of novels and poems and plays. The whole world of literature is about the very essence of what psychiatry is about. I feel a bit embarrassed asking this question, but, but why is Tolstoy so highly regarded and why do you regard him as having special relevance to psychiatry and psychotherapy and the kind of things that psychiatrists deal with in their clinics on a daily basis? No, it's a good question. There is something very special about Tolstoy. Uh, there are two things I'd pick out. One is that Tolstoy is interested in the interface between what's going on in the world and what goes on in the family and in the individual. War and Peace, hence the title War and Peace. The War and Peace is about Napoleon's um, invasion of Russia, but it's also about the Russian family and the everyday occurrences in Russian families of fathers, mothers, children, marriage, love, death, the birth of children and so on. And what Tolstoy, almost like any, unlike any other novelist, is somehow able to show how world events impact on everyday life. So, in that sense, that, that's one aspect of Tolstoy that makes him rather unique. I think the other is that he is utterly non-judgmental. He can see human beings, their strengths, their weaknesses, their good bits, their not-so-good bits, their foolishness, and their aspirations. And that, of course, is very much something that all psychiatrists need to be able to do with their patients. Non-judgmentalism is an absolute starting point for any kind of psychiatric work. 
however awful or horrible or worrying your patient may be, you must somehow be able to stand in a position that's both detached but also loving. And I think Tolstoy is like that in relation to his own characters. A lot of people hearing you say that um, would find that very difficult to get their heads around, I mean, in terms of the lay public, this idea of non-judgmentalism being at the heart of the psychotherapeutic or the psychiatric encounter. Could you say a bit more about that? Well, I'll give you a very personal example because it happened today. Um, I had a phone call um, from a member of my family um, uh, for my daughter and her mother-in-law, who's a woman in her late 80s, is a real worry to them. And her husband, my son-in-law, had to go off and help her um, move back into her house from hospital. And she's been very, very difficult in antagonizing her GP and antagonizing the hospital staff. And there's a terrific tendency to say, oh, she's a horrid woman, she's a bad woman. But actually, I think she's ill. She's probably got early signs of dementia. She's quite paranoid. And so her horribleness, if you like, has to be seen in this non-judgmental, if you like, medical way that she's suffering from an illness. She's not a bad person. Now, it seems to me that the novelist, in a way, does exactly the same. Of course, they don't take a position, a medical position, a diagnostic position, but they somehow are able only repeating what I said earlier, to kind of love their characters, which doesn't mean condoning all the bad things they do, but to see that they are human at the heart of everything, they're just human. And I think the, the lay public can understand that. If you go to see your doctor, you, however worried you are about yourself, however bad you feel you may be, however ill you may feel you are, you want your doctor to accept you as you are. So we go to a surgeon, we have some horrible bit of our body which isn't working well. We don't expect the surgeon to be off-put by that or to be repulsed by it. Or um, He simply accepts that's part of our body's nature, if you like. Well, the same is true for psychiatry. We go to our psychiatrist, we go to our psychotherapist with all our fears or our phobias um, and possibly with all the cruelties and horrible things that we feel we may have done to other people in our lives and we don't expect we our psychiatrists to be in any way judgmental about that. We expect them to stand in this rather neutral position where they're listening in a loving way, they're not judging but at the same time of course they're not necessarily agreeing with everything you've done. And again it seems to me that Tolstoy above all other novelists has this same capacity to see human nature for what it is, not to judge it and not to fudge it or gloss it over either. Okay, let's pick the particular passage that your paper um, is about, and you refer to this oak tree passage as being yeah. of particular significance. So why have you picked this particular passage, and tell us a bit about it, and what do you think it's saying? Okay, well, one of the interesting things about War and Peace is that it essentially has two heroes, and one of them is Prince Andre and that's the person I'm going to talk about, but they both actually represent different aspects of Tolstoy himself, I would say. The other hero, if you like, um, is uh, uh, someone called Pierre, and um, they represent, on the one hand, a rather 
arrogant, um, incredibly talented and brilliant and intelligent side of Tolstoy, and on the other, this kind of rather gauche and muddled side, that's Pierre. Now let's st start, let's stay with Andre, because this passage is all about Prince Andre. Now Prince Andre is rich, he's handsome, he's a huge landowner, but he's a cynic, and he's essentially lost faith in humanity. He's, by our standards, very young still, he's in his early 30s, and he's a widower. His wife has died in childbirth. Actually, he didn't love this wife. She was a kind of trophy wife. She was very pretty and attractive, but she was empty-headed and they had very little in common. She dies in childhood, and Prince Andre is left with a little baby that he hands over to his sister to look after. And he's in a kind of state in which he's really lost faith in life and in the future, and doesn't really believe in anything much. Part of his duties involve going on a journey to a, an outlying estate of his. Uh, <clears throat> and when he's on this journey, he has to visit by protocol a neighbor, a fairly well-off neighbor, um, Count Rostov. And as he's going through the forest, journeying on this, uh, towards the house of Count Rostov, he notices an oak tree. And we've got to remember this is spring. All around the oak tree, life teems. All the other trees are springing to life with beautiful green foliage. But the oak tree is leafless, bare, twisted, and barren. All that happens is that Prince Andre notices this tree. And typically of Tolstoy, he doesn't make a huge deal of it. He simply says, this is what... Prince Andre noticed as he was in his carriage going to visit the Rostovs. He then, the carriage goes up the drive, and in the drive there's some young women playing. They're cousins. One of them is Natasha Rostov, aged about 16, 17. And he sees this pretty, pretty, beautiful, lively girl who's happy and laughing. And she knows nothing of him. She knows nothing of Prince Andre. He suddenly realises that there are lives going on around him of which he's not a part. And being the sort of cynical narcissist that he has been up to this point, this thought has never occurred to him that other people actually exist separate from him. Anyway, he goes to the Rostov household, he spends the night there, there's a meal, and then he goes to his room to sleep. And it's a wonderful early spring, early summer, late spring night, and the nightingales are singing and everyone's windows are open, and his bedroom is just above where Natasha and her cousins, um, Sonia, are sleeping. And he hears Natasha talking about the night, saying, listen, Sonia, isn't it so beautiful? Listen to the nightingales, smell the air, listen to the trees rustling. And again, Prince Andre realizes how cut off he is from real life and from the excitement of spring that Natasha, both literally, you know, the fact that she's in the spring of her life, or we could say metaphorically, but also literally, they're surrounded by spring. He goes to bed, he sleeps, he gets up early next morning and sets off back to his own state. And as he goes through the wood, 
Once again, he glances at the oak tree. And what does he see? But the oak tree has sprung into light leaf. It's green. Those twisted limbs are covered in leaves. The oak tree is alive again. That's the passage I've chosen. It may sound, perhaps I hate to use this word, rather clunky, because it's very obvious that there's a parallel between the change that's going on in Prince Andre from this cynical, depressed state of withdrawnness and bereavement and self-absorption and his the glimmerings of some sort of recovery from depression moving back into life, which is associated with his attraction for Natasha, and that that is paralleled by this contrast between the barren oak tree the night before and the oak tree that's springing to life today. And Prince Andre suddenly realizes that there's a message in this tree, which is that life can renew itself. His life isn't over. He isn't an old man at 31. He can begin again. So that's the passage I've chosen. And I think it's a lovely passage in many, many ways, beautifully written, of course. But essentially, it describes recovery from depression. And recovery, in a way, from a lifelong depression. And for that reason, I think it's something that could be of great interest to psychiatrists. And that's why I chose to write about it. This particular article was a commissioned article. It's a series in the, in the journal that you mentioned, where they get psychiatrists to write about literature that's meant something to them. So I hope that covers some of the points you were asking me about. Yeah, um, but but in the discussion of um, this passage in your paper, you seem to be saying, and I could have got this wrong, that um, a lot of recovery from depression, there's a sense in which the hero in this passage has recovered from depression in some sense, but you seem to be saying a lot of recovery from depression kind of seems to happen um, outside of professional intervention, almost like the professional like the psychotherapist or the psychiatrist, it's kind of along for the ride, but the patient gets better uh, and, and the professional uh, intervention is incidental to that. You seem to be suggesting that. I'm not sure I've got that right. Well, it's, I mean, and I, I'm not sure you've got it right, but it's a very interesting point. It raises some quite complex issues. Um, I think I put it like this. Number one, um, I'm a great believer in the fact that most people go through life, go through the vicissitudes of life, all the difficult things that we have to cope with, leaving home, first love, lives that go wrong, separations, marriages, parenthood, worries about one's children, difficulties in one's marriage, the loss of one's parents, growing old, facing death oneself, all these issues, most people, the vast majority of people, go through those hurdles of life without the assistance of psychiatrists or psychotherapists. It's life itself has a self-renewing quality about it. Just as we are in, protect ourselves from illness, from infection, by our own immune system, we have, as it were, a built-in psychological immune system which helps us to cope with life's difficulties. So I'm an absolute believer in what my mother used to call the university of life. Um, so, in that sense, 
I, I don't think um, there's a problem there. The question is, what is the role of psychiatry in psychotherapy? Well, I would say when the normal healing processes of everyday life, which come from our relationship with our friends, our uh, inner strengths, go wrong, that's when you need help from psychiatrists and psychotherapists. But it's only a help to push you back into the mainstream of life, where again your own self-healing processes will take over. I mean, I, I, like to give, I like to give the analogy sometimes. I remember when I was a medical student doing my um, obstetric training, and as a medical student, you have to, as it were, deliver 12 babies, I think it was. But of course, you don't deliver those babies. It's the mother who does. And you're a kind of helpful bystander. Um, helpful in the sense that you may provide encouragement, but also helpful in the sense that if something serious goes wrong, then you're there to help. And I see psychiatry and psychotherapy in the same role, a kind of midwife role. We don't actually make the person better. The person makes themselves better, and life makes people better. But you're there to assist when necessary, and as it were, to push them into the stream of life so that that stream will carry them forward to health. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I see these, that particular issue. So, but I would like to argue that people come and they bring their stories and the psychotherapist listens and maybe I'm talking about maybe the wrong kind of psychotherapist, I'm not sure, or it depends on the school of psychotherapy you subscribe to, but the psychotherapist, all psychotherapists I venture to suggest, they take the story and then they edit it or they, they um, focus on something. I mean, for example, you focus on the tree and the hero of the story focuses on the tree, on the way into the estate, on the way out. Um, there's a sense in which the psychotherapist doesn't just passively hear the story, they, they listen carefully, they focus on something, they reinterpret the story and then hand it back to the patient. Um, so the, the, there's quite a lot of activity going on in, in, in the patient's story and, and their account of it in the, in the session. Yes, uh, I, mean, I totally accept that. If we stay with the midwife analogy, the midwife is going to be saying to the mother as she's giving uh, birth, where you're so many centimeters dilated, um, now you're fully dilated, now's the moment to push, um, now we've got to, uh, now here's the head appearing, um, now here's the whole body, here are the legs, now we've got to wait for the afterbirth. In other words, the midwife has a kind of theory, if you like, or has a vast experience of what birth consists of, whereas for that mother, it's the first, if it's her first child, but even if, she, if it's her third child, each event is kind of unique. So I would say the psychiatrist and the psychotherapist understand the process of depression. Let's take depression because Prince Andre is depressed. He's caught up in his depression. He's trapped in his depression. And what the psychotherapist or the psychiatrist or, in the case of Tolstoy, the novelist, does is, as it were, to be able to stand back sufficiently from that experience, from Prince Andre's depression, to see what's happening. So there is a theory there. There is a story there, if you like, which the novelist or the psychiatrist or the psychotherapist has, which they can then use to provide a kind of narrative for the patient suffering from depression. So they can see, yes, okay, it's my loss, it's my bereavement, it's my difficult childhood which has led to my depression. I'm talking about Prince Andre here. Maybe I just got stuck in a kind of cynicism. <clears throat> Maybe I need to look around me. Maybe I need to reconnect with the natural world, with the oak tree, or reconnect 
with people. Maybe at some point in the future I'll be able to remarry and find love again. Maybe I will be able to love my little son who sadly uh, hasn't got a mother but he has still got a father. So all these issues would be the sorts of things that a psychotherapist would be talking to um, a depressed patient about, a depressed patient someone like Prince Andre, just as in a way Tolstoy provides the story, the narrative, the framework, this simultaneous identification with Prince Andre and the capacity to stand back. And that again is what I think psychiatry is all about. We identify with our patients, but we remain objective. The problem with psychiatry is if you aren't able to identify and are purely objective. And those are the sorts of psychiatry, that's the kind of psychiatry which isn't very helpful. And I would even argue those might be the kinds of psychiatrists who don't read War and Peace. Conversely, if you over-identify with your patient, can't stand back, that's not so helpful either. So it's like a balancing act, you're walking a tightrope between these two positions. Exactly. And um, learning to walk that tightrope involves learning all sorts of things, including, in my view, learning to draw on literature as a source of inspiration, information, education. Now, what about the words, the, the, the phrase spiritual ecology, which occurs um, in the title of your paper? Could you say a bit more about that? What are you referring to there? Well, it's rather a pompous phrase, I'm afraid. But I think um, it's actually trying to make a very simple, I would hope, non-pompous point. And that is, if one is depressed, possibly if one suffers from other psychiatric illnesses, like even psychosis or obsessive-compulsive disorder or and severe anxiety disorders, one is, in a sense, very, very self-obsessed, and one's connections with the world become much weaker. Now, these connections are partly, of course, with other people, but they're also connections with the wider world. We could go beyond other people to one's immediate environment or to the other living creatures in one's environment, such as pets. If you go a little bit further, to your the natural world which surrounds you, and maybe the trees in the street that you live in, the park that you walk through, the flowers that you tend in your garden, even the vegetables that you eat for your lunch. All of these things are outside of you, and the connection when you are mentally ill, when you are psychiatrically ill, with these outside phenomena are weakened. So my argument, and in a way that's why I use this particular passage from War and Peace to illustrate it, is that the recovery from depression involves remaking connections, not just with other people. Yes, Prince Andre falls in love with Natasha, if you like, but he also reconnects with the natural world, with the forest, with this oak tree, which he realizes has life in it. And so I think this is something that has possibly got rather lost in contemporary psychiatry, this idea of connectedness not just with other people, but with the natural world. And paradoxically, or ironically, if you like, if we go back 50 years to um, when I was beginning to train in psychiatry, psychiatry was all, um, uh, took place, or the vast majority of psychiatry took place in mental hospitals. Now, mental hospitals in many ways were terrible places, but they weren't all bad. And one of the good things about mental hospitals is that they were like little villages. They involved large, wide, open spaces. And many of the inmates of the mental hospitals worked in the gardens, or they may have worked in the kitchens preparing food. Um, so there was a connection, a connectedness with everyday life, but also with the natural world. And I think something of that has got lost in our 
contemporary psychiatry and that we need to reconnect ecologically with the ecology. Ecology simply means a house. The house we live in isn't just the flat or the apartment that we live in, it's also the natural world which is also houses us. <coughs> I think this point comes out very beautifully in the Tolstoy passage that I'm, that I'm talking about in this paper. If you go back to the Victorian times and the large asylums of that era, many of them um, had farms within no, them. They were right. often exactly farms. They, they were well, often self-sufficient. Correct, absolutely. And and the patients often were encouraged or did work on the farm. Absolutely. And uh, we seem to have lost something pretty fundamental. There's a sense in which the Victorians almost had more wisdom than we do uh, in the modern era in sure. understanding uh, the point you're making. I'm, I'm interested that you were talking about Victorians because actually all this was true in the 1960s, which was when I started um, getting interested in psychiatry and working in mental hospitals as a, as a medical student. So um, we were quite a long way after the Victorian era. We're really talking about 50 years back. So something has got lost and it needs to be rediscovered, and I'm sure it can be rediscovered in modern psychiatry, but in different ways. So garden projects and... Um, whole food projects and actually bringing back the whole idea of work which doesn't necessarily have to be uh, agricultural work or um, farm work into the recovery process is I think something that people are beginning to think about and there are one or two projects around the country now which are taking this up. But I think it's hugely important, I think it's hugely important for everyone, it's not just for the, for the mentally ill, the psychiatrically ill, connection with nature I think is absolutely central to psychological health and I hope that there is a kind of movement in that direction and if we think about climate change for example, one of the things about climate change and denial of climate change is the fact that people are so cut off from the environment which they live in, that they have no sense of loss when parks are destroyed, trees are cut down, houses are built where there could be gardens and so on. So I'm, I'm moving into politics, which is not my area of expertise, but I do think this connection with the natural world is a vital part of mental health. And again, I think this Tolstoy passage illustrates that. The way you've been talking about psychiatry and depression is in marked contrast, some people might say, to the modern fashion, the modern vogue in psychiatry, which is to be biological, to embrace um, the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain, and to um, advocate time-limited six sessions of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you, you, your your um, perspective seems in marked contrast to that. Um, what are your thoughts about that, and, and has modern biological CBT-based psychiatry lost something fundamental in your view? Well, I'm going to respond in a slightly psychotherapeutic way, Raj, because you use the word embrace. And what is an embrace? It's a hug. So, even when you're talking about um, neurobiology and receptors in the brain, you use a metaphor which is actually a very human metaphor and a very connection-oriented metaphor of love. I don't necessarily mean sexual love. So let's just put that on the table, as it were, that actually you cannot get away from human beings related to, relating to one another. So if we come on to the neurobiology, um, I've got no problem with that at all because I believe that relationships are what determine the brain's biology. So if we change people's relationships, we're going to change their biology. And from that point of view, 
the kind of psychotherapeutic and social um, psychiatry that I'm advocating is not in any way incompatible with the modern interest in neuroscience. We come on to CBT. Uh, again, I think it entirely depends on the context. Um, it would be interesting to think about what kind, supposing Prince Andre came to one's clinic um, and hadn't had this experience with the oak tree in Natasha and said, look, I'm, I'm finished. My wife's died. Um, the world to me is a thoroughly depressing, dreary, horrible place. Um, I'm 31. I'm near the end of my life. Um, but I suppose I need a bit of help. I've got this son. Um, I, I really need to cheer up somehow. I mean, that might happen in contemporary, in our contemporary world. Now, I suppose the CBT therapist might uh, be able to help a lot. The CBT therapist might say, um, well, that's just a perception, um, and we need to change your view of the world. Um, now, where does this uh, perception that everything is useless and this cynical view of the world come from? Um, can we think of some alternatives? Could you think in a more positive way? If you think about something that really means something to you, maybe your role as a father. Um, actually, it's interesting because Prince Andre's father was a domineering, um, rather unloving man. And I think one of Prince Andre's problems, therefore, was that that was the role model that he had. And it's very difficult for him to be a good father to his own son, given the fact that he had a good father himself. So I think CBT in its succession form might possibly have turned Prince Andre around. Um, might have encouraged him to take his estates more seriously, might have encouraged him to do something um, enjoyable with his little baby son and then come back and report on it. And he might have come back saying, you know, I'm feeling a little bit better. We had a really nice time. We went out and um, kicked a football about in, in the garden or something. But actually, I think that's rather unlikely in the case of Prince Andre because he's not simply suffering from as it were, a simple bereavement, and the loss of one's wife, of course, could never be described as a simple bereavement. He is actually a lifelong cynic, I suspect, Prince Andre. And therefore, for his psychological state to change more radically, I think a much more prolonged and in-depth kind of therapy might be needed. So I would have thought Prince Andre would probably need one or even two years of once or twice weekly therapy, in which he before he could begin to trust the world, trust another person, feel held, feel hopeful, and be able, as it were, to turn his gaze away from his, himself to the outside world and possibly find new relationships and a new relationship to nature. So, yes, I have nothing, um, I have no objections um, I, um, to six sessions of CBT. I just think that it's an illusion and a delusion if anyone thinks that is going to solve the problems, deeply ingrained and embedded problems, of the sort that Prince Andre um, was suffering from. So that's where I'm standing, and yes, it's true, it's some, somewhat counterculture within psychiatry, although there's increasing evidence, actually, that long-term therapy produces um, very good outcomes. This isn't probably the context in which we should be discussing that, and that the relapse rate after six sessions with CBT is very high, and, of course, if Prince Andre was profoundly depressed, I certainly wouldn't have had any objections to him having a course of um, antidepressants, which, might again, might have lifted him sufficiently from the depths of his despair to be able to begin to make contacts um, 
and as it were to move into this mainstream of life which I see as the main curative uh, factor. Okay, but, but some people might say that the biological approach and the six sessions cognitive behavioral therapy approach kind of moves against the forming of connections with people. It kind of um, says take the tablet, come back and see me in six months time or let's give you six sessions of CBT and by the very fact it's circumscribed as six sessions precludes us forming a proper connection. It kind of rules it out. That the that modern psychiatry and also this notion that we work in teams, um, very rarely do NHS psychiatrists actually see their patients anymore. It's the team that sees the patient. All of this stuff is moving us away from forming real connections with people. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think the same doesn't just apply in psychiatry. It applies in medicine more generally because it applies in general practice. And we no longer see the same GP every time we go to see them and again the GP is unlikely to take this long-term developmental perspective I think that's what I try and focus on if we think about a life a life has a beginning a middle and an end let's say it's a developmental process and in I feel worried about sounding nostalgic but the fact is in medicine in general practice and to some extent in psychiatry as well there's a sense in which the relationship with a doctor is one that takes account of this developmental process and certainly in the old days a GP would quite commonly expect to have delivered as a baby so many of the patients who were on their list who they're now seeing in their twenties let's say so this idea that um, the doctor is a kind of companion and goes through your life with you with its ups and its downs, is something that we've really lost from general practice. And I think the same applies in psychiatry, because psychiatry, psychi most psychiatric illnesses are in fact chronic illnesses. You think of schizophrenia, you think of bipolar disorder, you think of obsessive compulsive disorder, you think of the personality disorders, these, you think of the addictions, these are all essentially chronic illnesses, just as diabetes is a chronic illness, or chronic obstructive airways disorders. A, a chronic illness or rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic illness. Now I think modern medicine does very badly by chronic illnesses. It does fine by acute illnesses. But this idea of a kind of lifetime with strengths and weaknesses, with ups and downs, with periods of health and periods of ill health, and of a kind of medical system that will see you through this lifetime, I think we've really lost that in psychiatry and I think we've lost it in general practice as well. And the idea of a secure base and attachment to a particular general practitioner or particular psychiatrist it doesn't have to be a psychiatrist, it could be a clinical psychologist, but as it were a long-term relationship with someone who is your therapist, your psychiatrist, your helper, your carer, is something that is increasingly missing from our medical culture. And I think that's a terrible thing and we've really got to rethink it and try and find some way back to that given, of course, the financial constraints which we, under, we operate under. One final question. Um, I, I, I don't know uh, enough about this, but I thought, and I could be wrong, that Tolstoy himself suffered from poor mental health or, or had psychiatric difficulties or maybe even suffered from depression. What's the link between that and, and the insights in War and Peace? Hmm. Well, I think there'll be two things to say about that. One is, you could say, he's been there himself 
And uh, of course, Tolstoy, like all great artists, has an incredible capacity for empathy, for being able to put himself in other people's shoes. But clearly, all artists draw on their own experience. But they somehow find a way to transform that experience into something beautiful, something meaningful, something truthful. So I'm sure to an extent you might say that writing War and Peace, writing Anna Karenina, writing Resurrection, were all Tolstoy's attempts at self-cure. And remember, well, remember, I, I've been arguing earlier in this conversation that self-cure is the actually the norm. So most of us deal with our difficulties ourselves with the help of something outside ourselves, our dog, our garden, our friendships, our hobbies, our favourite football team, our favourite pop group. So we use these, as it were, cultural artefacts as means of self-cure. And I'm sure that Tolstoy, to an extent, was dealing with his own bereavement at the age, as I say, he became orphaned at the age of 10, um, his difficult childhood, his difficult personality. He was using his art, his writing, to help himself with that. So I, I, just as I'm a great believer, I'm a great believer in the concept of the wounded healer. So we psychiatrists, why do we go into psychiatry? Because at one level we're trying to deal with some of our own difficulties. And, and that, if we put them to good use, provides us with empathy for our patients. Seems to me the same is almost certainly true of any creative artist, and particularly of a novelist. So, in a sense, Tolstoy was curing himself through his novel, but he was also kind of a wounded healer in the sense that he was using his own wounds to help and understand and be empathic towards the characters that he created in his novels. Jeremy Holmes, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Raj. <laughs>